Welcome to Village Church Online. My name's Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. I could not be more thrilled that you're with us today. Today, we're gonna be going through Psalm 40. And as you turn there, I just wanna frame for you the way I want you to perceive and look at this text, the lens from which I want you to look at it, because it's an Old Testament text, and some of us fall into the trap of splitting the character of God down the line of the two Testaments. We look at the Old Testament, and we say, okay, that's God in one stance, and he's a little bit different than maybe what we'd see in the New Testament in the life and blood and resurrection and grace and love of Jesus, like the walking physical God that walked among humanity. And so we feel like God almost has this split personality and it's hard to join the two. And maybe you struggle with that. So you'll stick a lot in the New Testament where you're like, oh, I just love this God better. Or some of you love the Old Testament God and you're like, man, this is it. But Psalm 40 does this beautiful thing where it actually overlaps the two. It helps us to see God in a much clearer way because it stacks these understandings and images and characteristics of God on top of each other through David's experience. What I hope that you'll experience as we read through Psalm 40 and dissect it a bit is you're going to see just how similar David's reflection on his understanding of and his experience of a relationship with God is similar to what we might go through today. If you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you're going to see a whole lot of similarities in what you've gone through. And so my hope is that what this does is it actually magnifies and glorifies God in a new way for you. And it actually pushes you to read your Bible in a Christ-centered way. This is what I mean. A friend of mine recently got into the hobby of like looking through telescopes scopes and astronomy and looking through it all and seeing things that are in the sky. So he bought this incredible rig and he wanted to take me out as I was hanging out with him just this last weekend in Victoria. And so we went to this like cricket pitch and it's beautifully dark and the sky is so clear. And by hand, he's pointing things out. He's saying, Chris, we're going to see Jupiter. That's there. That's Saturn. We saw the moon. It was so bright and beautiful. He's like, we'll do a little bit of deep space stuff. And we started to set up the actual telescope and he was walking me through the process. And this is really interesting for me because I've always wanted to love astronomy. Like I love going to the planetarium. I love seeing stars. I cried at Interstellar. Like I'm a space junkie who's never actually looked at space like through a telescope. So here I am just loving and wanting to see this and wanting to learn as much as I can about it. And so we set and start to calibrate the actual telescope on not just the North Star, but true North, which is just a little bit off, off from the North Star. And then when the telescope knows exactly where it is, what happens is everything kind of revolves around that point. So if you were to look at Jupiter for two hours, Jupiter will have actually moved, but a good telescope will track with it. And this is how they get incredible pictures of space. Because as I looked through the telescope, I wasn't seeing the same vibrant, poppy, beautiful, bright images. In fact, we look at even Andromeda. And Andromeda is this galaxy, the closest one to the Milky Way. And it's trillions of stars. Now, I was so excited to see it because I've never seen trillions of anything. And I've seen pictures online. It's just this huge galaxy of just bright, popping color. And I was so excited. And when we looked through the telescope, I was a little disappointed because all I saw was this little smudge with maybe a pin in the middle. And I tried to look, I was trying to focus it. And so I asked him about how do we get these incredible pictures? Like the ones where you, you see it online and you see like this blanket of the Milky Way above you, but I've never seen that. Is it where the location? Is it like the perfect like night sky? And what he told me is this, it's like photographers and people who are taking pictures of space will actually go out and set up a camera to track with a certain picture. And they'll do it night after night after night for hours on end and they'll take all of these images and actually stack them upon each other so you get a more brighter full view of what you're looking at where the naked eye might not see it and the way God wrote and made this Bible happen the way he inspired it to come in this is his like living word he did it in the same way like all of the text all of the scriptures all of the Bible is preaching the glory of Christ and you have to look at it that way this Christ-centered view where all of it is talking about the narrative of this loving merciful gracious God who 
who's saving his people and being faithful to them. And so I hope that's what you're gonna see. Let me give you an example right out of the gate. This is David in verse one. I waited patiently for the Lord. Underline patiently because we're gonna get to it. He inclined me, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. This is a microcosm of the gospel. This is exactly what you'd experience in your relationship with Jesus as far as salvation. This is what it is. You're stuck in this miry pit. You're stuck in your destruction. You cry out to the Lord. He hears your cry. He steps in in his mercy and he actually pulls you out of the bog. He saves you. And not only that, but he sets your feet upon a firm foundation, which is Jesus. Like he sets you on that foundation. So you have a new hope, a transforming grace, a new life, a new perspective, a new purpose. You have these incredible things now to live in this new life experience. You are a new creation in him. And this is what it's like. And this is exactly what David says his relationship with God is. So these two stories intersect beautifully and give us this broader picture, this broader view of the glory of who Jesus is and what he accomplishes in your life through the hope of the gospel. The fact that like David here in this beautiful prophetic way is actually hinting to the reality that one day sin will be wiped away because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That for you, he's a very real and present help in the midst of whatever destruction you're facing. When you're stuck in the miry bog, this thick clay and you can't seem to walk through it, I don't pretend to know exactly what you're going through, but God does know and he listens to you and he's asking you to patiently wait so that he can pull you out and set your feet upon a rock, the rock of Jesus spiritually, but even in real times of trouble. Sometimes we're afraid to ask God to help us in the very things we're going through in life like because we don't believe he's actually gonna show up. We just don't believe he's gonna be there. And David has this profound trust to wait patiently in the Lord. This patience for God to show up is something we need to be encouraged in as a society, as a people, because all of us are itching and edging to get back to normal or this new normal, whatever it is. We're pushing that way. We're highly impatient. Our society's conditioned us to want things now, want them quickly and want them as soon as we want them. And the reality is that God's actually encouraging us. Be patient because I hear you. Be patient, I hear your cries. So whatever you're going through, try and sit in that patience. When I was working as a receptionist at Village Church, uh, we had some pretty financial hard times in my family. It was really tough for me, Mercedes. We had Jacob at the time and Calvin, our second son, was on the way. And there were times where we were like legit living off of like butter chicken sauce, chickpeas and potatoes. Like that was it. And there was a time that where we had $5 left in both of our bank accounts combined. Like she had like $2.70, I had like $2.35. And we actually, it would cost $5 in gas to drive from our basement suite apartment to the office and home. And one day my wife picked me up and the gas was on empty and we knew we had this $5. So I went into the gas station I paid with two carts to get $5 of gas in our vehicle. I was praying to God that whole time throughout that whole season, God, show up, show up, show up. Like this is hard for me as a father. Am I doing the right thing? I'm trying to be faithful to what you're calling me to. I'm trying to walk in what? The hope that you've given me, the reality that I believe you're taking care of me and my family, but it's really hard to trust that right now because the circumstance around me is preaching me a different story. And I was praying this to God to the point that even the next day when I went back to work, knowing that I wasn't gonna be able to make it home because the gas would have been out again and I had no money to get more gas, I went in with a, with a sleeping bag and a toothbrush thinking that I was gonna sleep at the office that night. Now in God's mercy, in the midst of my destruction, in the midst of the bog I was walking through, in the midst of all the pain and things that I was going through, that day in my backpack, I found a red envelope with the words, you're awesome on it and $200 cash. 
Like that just, it changed my life. Like this real tangible, real experience of God stepping in through his people, stepping in like around me, stepping in. And, and then spiritually what that did was encourage this trust in my heart just to pursue him more, to trust him, to say, yeah, he pulls me out and he puts my feet on this firm foundation that I can walk in confidence in following what he has for me, regardless of what I'm going through. And so that's what I hope for you is in the midst of what you're, whatever you're walking through, like let these two verses give you hope, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, whether it's needs based, that God will show up and time and time and time again, he does. And it continues that this did something, this changed something in David's life, that he put a new song on his mouth, a song of praise to our God that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord, that his patience is based in this trust. And it changed how David lived. It actually changed how he worshiped. It changed this song that was on his soul, the song that was on his mouth, the things that he sung and praised about and worshiped. And like, let's be honest, music has this uncanny power to like almost control us. It's almost manipulative what music can do in our lives. Like God created music to be this beautiful thing that can move us emotionally and physically. Like you tell me one person who doesn't get jacked up when Lose Yourself like pops on the radio. Like it's just like, there's something in the way music has been created to be that causes, stirs us up in affections. It stirs us up in courage. It stirs us up in passions in all these different ways. And what happens is that God actually then replaces everything that we believe in the same way. Like he changes us so much that this new song of worship comes out of our life. A song that pleads his glory, a song that pleads like his mercy, a song that has that kind of power to change lives around him. And so like, this is what happens to David. It's a real thing. And he starts reflecting on that to the new person that he is. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, who those, the, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. Like the goodness of God in your life. He's just reflecting on what God's done, the goodness of God, the glory of God, like what he's done in everything. And he continues, like he's saying like, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. It's an obedience piece. Where it's like, not only is he singing this new song of worship to God, but he actually feels this desire, like deep down in the core of who he is. When David talks about his heart, that's like, like embodying all of his affections and all he wants. He's saying that this now is a new way of life. He actually desires to be obedient to what God is calling him to do. Like the things he wants to do are now the things that God wants him to do. Like this is him. And it's so powerful just to think about how like this whole thing can change. Like this is a dedication verse. This dedication, not just reflection or reaction to what God's done, but David is seeding himself in a dedicated life, aiming to please God with the way he lives. He's saying, God, you've given all of you to me. You've given everything of you. You've, you've stepped into sin for me. You sacrificed your son for me. Like this is the reality of what you're living in. And now what is the correct response? What's the posture I should have? What should I do for you? It's the step of obedience. Like we are called as people who follow Jesus. We are called as people who say they have a relationship with God and love him to actually like be changed, to actually live differently, to pursue this obedience, this full like subverting our own authority to the King Jesus so that we can actually live under him and be obedient to him in his life, trusting that that obedience will actually lead to a deeper relationship and understanding of who God is so we can live more fully in his will, like the, his will is on our heart, not our will anymore. 
that's a big change. That's a hard change because it's not just one piece of him. It's all of him. It's saying, God, you've given me all of you and now I want to give all of me back to you. Isn't this kind of like the perfect place for a testimony to end? Isn't that like the perfect Christian testimony? It's like, God, you pulled me out of my sin. You set me on a firm foundation with Jesus. Now I sing your praises. I tell everybody around about who you are. I live differently. And even in how I act, I'm now obedient to you. Like this is honestly, I grew up in a Baptist church. This is what you would hear. This frame, this storyline, every single time there was a baptism. We had a tank and the person would wade into the baptismal tank and they'd stand there and this little microphone that's sitting on like a little boom stand would just be right there. And they would share their testimony in front of the church and it was always perfect like this, right? People would clap, shed a couple tears. Oh man, everything's so perfect. And like, that's where we would hope that the Christian testimony and life with Jesus would end, that everything at that point's perfect. Everything's changed. I'm perfect. I'm super obedient. I walk with Christ. I'm never doubting, never failing, always trusting, walking with him. And this is why the next step is so important. This next half of this Psalm is like David's authenticity in the midst of the struggle to live life because he knows like where you've actually been saved from sin, like from the, the actual like struggle of sin, like you've saved from, you've been saved from the struggle, the penalty of sin, but you're still struggling with the power of sin in your life. Like listen to what he's saying here. He continues this in verse nine. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken your faithfulness, your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This is him again, proclaiming the goodness of God. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Why? Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Why? For evils have encompassed me. Beyond number, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. My heart fails me. My iniquities have overtaken me. Like this one verse, my heart fails me, should be the verse that you tattoo on your body to remind you that your heart will lead you astray from the God of the universe who has better things for you. It's like sometimes we make these decisions like based on what we're feeling, whether it's romantic passion or whether it's like decisions on like, I feel like God is calling me to do this or I feel like this is where I should be going with my life. I've seen this thing and it's inspired me and this is now what I should pursue. And we take our heart at word and say, this is what we should be doing. But David right here so clearly says that his heart fails him and your heart will fail you. The heart is a poor indicator of judgment and direction. It's a bad compass. Your heart is a bad compass. Don't follow it. Follow Jesus' heart because what's his heart? What do you say? He says, your heart, oh Lord, you, you don't restrain mercy from me. His heart's merciful. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve you. His heart preserves you. His heart wants good, faithful, preservative things in your life. Your heart wants whatever your heart wants the day it wants it. It's different. So what does it look like to understand the position of your heart, the propensity to sin inside you? And, and why is it still such a struggle? I thought David just said he was set upon a rock and he's preaching God's word and he's thanking God and worshiping God and all these beautiful things. Like why does he still struggle with sin? Is this not something that you've experienced if you've been living as a Christian? Is this not where you've been disappointed after you've given your life to Jesus? Where you believe things should start going well for you all the time. Where you overcame a sin. 
where you killed this like lion of a sin in your life. And like Samson and judges, when you're walking past it again, you see honey in that rotting carcass of a sin and that rotting carcass of a lion. You walk back to it to eat that honey and you're caught in the temptation of sin that ensnares you and you're still struggling in it. It's like, I thought I was over that. Why am I struggling in it? Is this the Christian life? Friends, this is a hard truth. The Christian life is not a life without struggle. The Christian life is one where, yes, the penalty of sin has been paid for you. The Spirit's work in your life to transform you is there. The hope of the gospel is present, but there's still gonna be struggle of the power of sin over you in your life. But the hope is this, is that the hope is true, that there is a good one who walks alongside you. A couple of years ago, we wanted to raise money for a local hospital here at Village Church. And so we thought we were looking for different ways to do that. Like, how can we raise money? What's a fun way to get people involved? And one of the ways someone suggested to me was a marathon. They said, Chris, I saw this church that actually did a marathon together and they raised a whole bunch of money. And I said, that's a really great idea. We should do a marathon. And they're like, no, no, Chris, like you need to do the marathon. If you're leading it, you need to be the one. Now I like deep in my soul believe that God has like providentially made some people runners and some people walkers. All right. Like I am a walker. I'm not a runner. It's not built for me. Like praise God, all glory to him. That's just not who I am. And so I refused. I looked up online, like what a marathon was. It was like, it's like 41 kilometers or 42 kilometers. Like that's insane. I don't think that's possible. So I looked for something lesser and I, there is a half marathon. And so I said, great, I will commit and I will be part of this. And I'll just do a half marathon instead, which if you don't know, a half marathon is 21.1 kilometers. And so I started running. I got a Nike app on my phone, which would train me. And after I'd go for this long run, which I thought was long, the little like trainer voice that's meant to encourage you is like every drop in the bucket counts to fill that bucket. And like, that wasn't a drop. Like I like legit turned the hose on. I thought I filled that bucket. And like, but this was the, like, I'm training and I'm training and I'm training. And I got like walking pneumonia as I was training. I healed from that. I kept training. I was going towards this marathon, this half marathon, and I was going to do it. So here we are on, here we are on race day and I'm feeling good. Except there was one issue. Like the, the farthest I ever got in my training runs was 12. 12.3 kilometers. Like that was the longest run I'd ever done. And if do the math, 12.3 kilometers is not 21.1 kilometers. A whole lot of kilometers in the middle of 12.3 and 21.1. And that was my goal. I had to get over that mountain to do the marathon, to raise the money. People had committed funds and I was gonna do it. So here we were on race day and I'm standing there at the start line, back in my pack for the pace I thought I'd run it in. And I got my phone in my arm pack. I got these gel things that give you carbohydrates so you can run further. Like I got my headband on, I'm wearing my stuff. I'm ready to go and the run starts. Kilometer one, easy. Kilometer two, keeping pace. Three, four, five, like I am flying, right? You got the hype of the run. Everybody around you, you're running downtown Vancouver and they've cleared streets. So you're having these really cool views and experiences. And then it starts getting at you, right? Kilometer seven, you're starting to get tired. You're feeling it. Your legs are feeling it, but you're running. Eight, nine, okay, now I'm really getting tired. 11, okay, I feel like I broke through the wall, right? I'm running again, 12, 12.3, there we go. I've passed my longest run before and I'm actually feeling quite good. I can keep going, 13, 14, 15. Okay, now I'm exhausted. Like at 15, I made the decision to no longer run up hills. Like I'm like, if there's a hill, I'm walking it. I will run downhill and straight forward. That is it. And I'm, I'm starting to lag behind. Like the Cedar, Senior Citizens Olympics are like passing me. Like no lie, this guy, in a, he was like, must've been like 85 years old, okay? He's wearing a garbage bag for a shirt and a garbage bag for pants and he has a Viking helmet on and he passes me. 
like this 85 year old Nordic Viking guy. Like he just like runs past me, blows past me. I didn't see him again the whole race. I don't know where he went. He may have been an angel to encourage me. And so here he's running. And so I'm just losing it. I'm starting running more. And around kilometer 17 or 18, I'm starting to lose hope. Like I'm just feeling down. Like my body's hurting. My legs are seizing up. It's like this moment where like in like Forrest Gump, he starts dancing and these shackles come off his leg and he starts running. They're falling off. And there's a beautiful scene where he's running. The shackles are all falling off his legs and all these crazy things are happening. Like mine was like, if you put that in reverse, like I'm trying to run and the shackles are like clamping onto my legs. Like I just cannot make it. And I'm running, I'm running. And then finally the last kilometer, like we're entering through Stanley Park in Vancouver and we're coming up to the finish line around the corner. And I, I just can't, like my legs decide, they made the decision, that's it, they're done. There's no more running coming out of this body. You're so close, but you're not gonna make it. And so here I am trying to go, trying to go, trying to hobble. And this lady comes up next to me and your name's on your bib. So it makes it this really personal experience. And she just starts yelling at me like, Chris, come on, you got this. Chris, you can do this. Chris, come on, one foot after the other. Come on, Chris, step. Come on, Chris, keep walking, keep walking. Okay, okay. Let's pick it up a little. Let's try jogging, let's go. Chris, you're almost there. And we come around the corner and it's like all these people waiting for their loved ones, lining the sides towards the finish line. And they're seeing your name too. And they're encouraging you. Come on, Chris, come on, Chris. You can do this, Chris. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Do this, Chris, run. Then you start seeing familiar faces and people are encouraging you. Come on, this lady's like yelling at me now. And I'm like hobbling, but I'm going, right? And we're trucking and we're we're going and we're going, start cheering at home, recreate it for me. And I'm running and they're like, come on, Chris, you can do this, you can do this. And the finish line's there and boom, I cross the finish line, 21.1 kilometers down, but not without struggle. See, the struggle in the midst of my marathon was similar to the struggle that you're gonna have in life. You might feel good for kilometer one through five, like walking with Jesus. You might feel like you have things in check. Kilometer seven hits and you start hitting a wall. You start feeling like, man, I don't know if I can make it through this. Kilometer eight and nine, you break through, you start keep going, 10, 11, 12. And then you start getting into this beautiful rhythm of the church where you start actually stepping into obedience like David did to the things that God says is good for you. Things like when Jesus prays in John 17, that his people would be one the same way that he, the father and the spirit are one. He prays for unity and he says, take the step of obedience to be in unity. Like have yourself be part of a local church, a local group of people who can then do what? As you're running and as you're falling apart and as you're not able to make it, they can be cheering you on. And then God in the midst of it, like honestly, this lady was like a gift. He's right there with you. The hope of the gospel is it's not without struggle, but it's also not without hope. It's not without hope of the God of the universe who like supernaturally is gonna be with you to help you step through and endure and be long and faithful in the marathon of life. It's not without encouragement of the word of God to encourage you to say, hey, run the race like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer, which gives you these pictures that Paul gives us of what we should be doing in our faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of a long run, in the midst of a long go, in the midst of a long haul. Like your relationship with Jesus will not be this pretty sprint of verses one through 11, where it's like, man, everything's going good. Your relationship with Jesus is gonna feel a whole lot more like the rest of this Psalm, where it's like, man, struggle, but with hope. Struggle with good community, if you step into it, who can encourage you along the way. Struggle, but with the truth and hope of the gospel that Jesus says, hey, your feet aren't, no, aren't anymore like stepping in the clay. That's slow walking, that's not anything. You can step out of this, you're on a saw solid, steady, foundational rock that you can run, you can sprint, you can keep moving forward. And by my power, you can be courageous, that you can be courageous in my power to continue to move forward faithfully. 
You see, we try and even encourage this here. That's why we teach from the Bible because we believe the Bible has a supernatural authority to actually change your life. Not me, not Mark, not any of the guest speakers we've had. It's like the authority of the word of God has the power to change something, even change what you long for and how you're obedient. Like, I was teaching at this camp um, just a couple weeks ago and we had all the staff in one place and there was like this 40 minute staff devotional. And as we were going through it, I'd done a whole bunch of study in the book of James and I was really excited to walk the camp through this. But then when I told them like, hey guys, we're gonna go through the book of James. They're like, like I saw kind of these reactions in their face. I said, what, what's up? They're like, we've gone through James like three times. And so here I am thinking like, what? I thought like, God had done something to say, Chris, this is the book you need to bring to them. This is the one you've been studying. This is what you want to share from. And so I, but I started making this decision, like maybe I won't do it. But after that first session, when I talked about it, I had about five people come up to me and say, Chris, I just feel like there's something that we haven't found in the book of James that God is like trying to like dig out of us. Like he's trying to put us back into it because there's something he wants to tell us. And so I thought, well, why don't, why don't I just go through it in one night? Like instead of me trying to bring the Bible to life, why don't I just let the Bible live? Like, why don't I just let the Bible do what it does through the preaching of the word, like just through me actually just reading it. So I sat there and I read through the book of James and after every single chapter, I just gave them like two minutes just between them and the spirit of God, just to like, God, where do you want to apply this? What are you trying to do in my life? What is this? And it was one of the most powerful experiences. Like that room felt change because the living word of God was actively living. And that's why we preach from the Bible. That's why we encourage you to read it. That's why at every community group gathering and everything we do, we say, you're reading the text you're reading the text, you're reading the text, like be in the word of God because the word of God will not return void. Like read it, like indulge yourself in it, just get into it in every way you can and see how it changes you. And if you're struggling with obedience, like actually try that, like open up the book of James. It's five chapters, takes half an hour to read. And at the end of every chapter, give yourself two minutes, just two minutes of silence and just see what God does in that space in in the way of your obedience and responding to him because it's this beautiful letter. I mean, Martin Luther said it like, it like um, mauled or mangled the scriptures, but like, you know, what does he know, right? And so here we, so it's like this wild thing where like the living word of God actually works. And then the other thing we try and do is get you into real connection and community. I mean, community groups are starting up again this month, like really soon. So make sure you join, like head to thisisvillagechurch.com, click on the community groups online button and get connected to a group, no matter where you are in the world. We have people who want to journey in that, step into relationship with you and can be those people who cheer you on through very, real things in life. And believe me, it makes a difference. It makes a significant difference. In my community group, we got into the practice of praying for one another. And if you don't know, I deal with this um, or have dealt with in the past, this great anxiety towards flying. And the worst part would actually be leading up to the flight itself. And so I'd get so nervous leading up to it. I was trying like, even like medication, trying to ease my anxiety. Like there was one of those things that was awful. And in my group, we had gotten into the habit of praying for one another in a place where we sit people down, we put our hands on them, we pray for them. And we asked that God would show up. And in that group setting, one of my friends just put his hand on me and said, God, I just pray that you would heal Chris, that you'd heal him from this anxiety towards flying. And I also pray that you would help him believe that this works, that this prayer, that you hear him, that you're there. You see, and in that moment, like God began this beautiful cycle of healing my heart. And now I can fly, like it doesn't even bother me. And it's this very real tangible experience. And for some of you who might be skeptical of this, it's like, I I don't know if God does that. I don't know if God will do that for me. Maybe it's something that you've experienced, Chris. Maybe it's psychosomatic. Maybe it's something else going on. It's like, this is a very real and living, active God in your life. It was active and living for David. It's active and living for you in a deep relationship with Jesus. So David continues after he says, man, my heart fails me. I'm failing myself. 
He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Lord, make haste to help me. Let those who put shame and disappointed all together, who seek to snatch away my life, let those be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Man, this is you too. People will, people will celebrate your losses. People will celebrate the fact that you failed. People will put that on a pedestal. Media highlights it all the time for so many people. It's this cancel culture that loves judgment, that loves it. And you might experience that. But this is between you and God. Let those, who, let those be appalled because of their shame. Those who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And this is where it gets real. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me like this. If this is not the most encouraging piece of this whole Psalm, like let this be the thing that moves you and grows you and inspires your faith and builds trust in God. These words, but the Lord takes thought for me. God, the, like, the person, like the, the God who created the universe, the God who created everything, the God who makes everything work, the God who sustains everything, the Jesus who went to the cross, the Holy Spirit who works in the world, the very real things that happen, this very alive God, the mighty one, the high counselor, the big one, like he thinks of you. He thinks of you. Like he spends time thinking of you. Isn't that not like the most powerful experience in your life when like, even just on a human scale, when someone's thought of you? Like husbands, try this. You wanna earn brownie points? Like middle of the day, like text your wife, hey, just thinking about you. You know what that does for someone's heart? Like think around around birthdays, like think about the opposite, when someone hasn't thought of you when you expect them to, right? Like when I, one of my birthdays when I was growing up, my parents went to Mexico and forgot it was my birthday. They called me three days after my birthday. I'm so sorry. Oh my goodness. Yeah, okay. And my dad came home and he gave me the silver bracelet. And I remember I was so proud of it. I started wearing it around and it got super tattered and tarnished. And then I went to my buddy who owned the silver shop and I said, hey, are you cool to clean this for me? Like it's looking, he's like, yeah, absolutely. He went to clean it. He came back, gave it to me. He said, Chris, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, this isn't silver. I said, what are you talking about? Like, it's like I got punched twice. Like, not only wasn't he thinking of me, and I, so I went to my dad. I'm like, dad, is this for real? Like, not silver? He's like, ah, oh, I bought it on the beach in Mexico for like 10 bucks. I said, dad, like, what are you doing to me? You know, like, that's like, that hurts when someone hasn't thought of you when you expect they should. Or maybe when someone thinks of you when you didn't know. Like, my wife, she threw me this birthday party one time. Like, it was like, I come into my friend's house. I kind of wasn't feeling it that night. I was just like, ah, oh, I feel a little sick or something. Like, I don't want to do anything. Let's just stay in. She's like, no, no, I just got to pick something up. So we go there and she's like, can you go in and get it? And I go inside and it's like all of my closest friends, this big party, this murder mystery that she set up. Like, and then I was thinking like, oh man, like, cause I love to get into character like that. Like, so I'm like, well, then I got to be this person. And she's like, I got it. She said, like, come upstairs. And I go upstairs and she has three outfits laid out for like the seventies. And I got to choose the one I want. Like she thought through every detail and my heart just leapt. This idea that like she thought of me, gave me this value, this courage, this identity, this purpose, this hope, this joy, that like, this full experience. And the God of the universe thinks of you like, I don't know what you're going through, but he does. I don't know what you're struggling with, but he knows and he hears you. And he says to you, like, you might like, so cry out to him, be honest with him, take a cue. Like my hope is this for you, that we would take a cue from David to be authentic in the struggle. Like when something's going hard in our lives to be authentic to God with it. Like you may be like, God, like just take this addiction from me, like, rid me of it. 
You know, save me from this moment in my relationship when I want to do the wrong things. Save me from the darkness inside myself. Like, put light in there so that I want to live differently. Save me from my own heart, which drives me in different desires. Like, my hope for you is that you'll be real to God. And my other hope is that you would rest and have hope and have truth and trust and patient waiting in the fact that God thinks of you and he loves you and that you're not alone in the struggle you're running through because the supernatural living God has a new, has a whole desire and love for you and for your life. And he wants to see that life, honor him and what it does. He wants to see that life actually experience God now and forever. He wants to see you live in a different transformed way. And so our call is to try and be obedient. Our call is to submit those worries, those anxieties, all those things to him. And our call is to live like in the first, the first two verses again, where we wait patiently on the Lord we recognize that he not only hears my call, but he thinks of me. He thinks of me and loves me. That he draws us out of the pit of destruction like he did in his son, Jesus, and sets our feet upon the rock of Jesus Christ. That we have a true hope and one that can save us, not just for eternity, but can be a really true savior now in the midst of whatever you're walking through. Father, I thank you so much for how you love and how you think of us, and how you care for us. And in the midst of everything that we go through, in the midst of the struggle, we are not without hope. Thank you for the beauty that is Psalm 40, this like beautiful picture of what David experienced with you and what we can experience with Jesus, and that you two aren't far off, that you are one. Would this encourage this unity and this understanding of the Trinity? Would encourage the hope in our hearts? Would encourage our obedience to you? And will we take the steps necessary to love you more, to submit ourselves to you and to be thankful for all you've done for us. And we pray this in your beautiful name, amen.